You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you so much, Caleb. Guys, you never know what to uh, expect uh, when announcements come up. Uh, so thanks for those treats. All right, that's, uh, that's probably got to be the last one. I probably killed it at that point. Yeah. The, la- the laugh was reluctant and groaning. That's what it sounded like. Yeah. Um, man, but yeah, guys, thanks so much for Cassidy. Can we give a round of applause for Cassie for coming this morning? Yeah, she's filling in for Stephen, who is uh, traveling uh, this week. And uh, man, what a gift that Cassie is to our community. And uh, man, I almost feel like I don't need to preach after that parable that, G- that Caleb told and and uh, Cassie's work. So thank you guys for, for leading our community uh, this morning. Uh, one of my favorite landmarks in, uh, in the state of Arizona, the beautiful state of Arizona, is a place called Fossil Creek. Anybody been to Fossil Creek? Nice couple folks. Yep, some adventurers in the room. It's kind of a hidden gem. It's tucked into the, the hills of northern Arizona, and it's challenging to get to. You've got to drive from Phoenix up through a small town called Payson, And then from Payson, you've got to go northwest to an even smaller town called Strawberry. Yes, there is a town called Strawberry. Fascinating. Then, once you're through Strawberry, you have to do some off-roading to get to the Fossil Springs Trailhead. And once you're there, you have to hike a ways down to the actual creek. And the beginning of the trailhead looks like this here. It's kind of desertous, rocky, dry. doesn't seem like it's going to lead to something very promising. I remember the first time that I went... My friend swore that there was something at the end of this trail, and I was like, this? This is going to lead to something cool? And they're like, you just got to stick it out. And so we hiked down and down and down into this valley, and eventually we arrived at this. After about an hour hike, this trail opens up to a beautiful waterfall. It's deep. It's swimmable. There's fish and marine life. You can cliff jump here. It is in many ways, a natural wonder. And all of this comes from one constant, what's called a perennial spring. Just upstream from this waterfall, there's one little spring that keeps going all year long. One little spout coming up from the ground produces all of this beauty. But my first trip there, after uh, spending some time at the creek, I got a little frustrated. Not because of the creek itself. It's beautiful and striking. But the farther downstream you travel, the more dirty the creek becomes. The farther you get away from the source, the more trash and rubbish lie all within the creek. It becomes muddy and dirty. The more that humans meddled in this place, the less pure and beautiful it became. And Jesus tells us in the text we're going to read this morning that the same sort of thing can happen in our spiritual and religious lives if we're not careful. In this next installment in our series we're calling, Whoa, we're going to hear from Jesus how the highly religious people of his day, the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, had moved away from the source of their faith, how they had strayed far from the spring, and how they had focused instead on their own human religious requirements and interpretations. A faith that was supposed to start and end with the justice and the mercy and the love of God became a faith of rule following, a faith of rigorous legalism, and a faith that overlooked the justice and mercy and love of God. 
They focused on the wrong things in the wrong ways at the wrong times, and it made the water of the faith utterly undrinkable. So let's turn in our Bibles and hear how Jesus speaks this to the Pharisees and what that might speak to us today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11. If you've got a Bible, I encourage you to flip there. We'll be starting in verse 42 and then skipping ahead to verses 45 and 46. That's Luke 11:42. We also are going to have the words up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can follow along there. Luke 11:42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kinds and neglect justice and the love of God. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. And one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. And he said, woe also to you lawyers, for you load people with heavy burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not lift a finger to ease them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tithing, the practice that Jesus mentions right at the start of our passage here today, was a common practice in ancient uh, Near Eastern culture, ancient Middle Eastern culture. It was done by a variety of different groups. And the word tithe, the root of tithing, literally means tenth. The practice of tithing meant giving a portion of one's income, often a tenth of one's income or harvest for the year, to a religious or social institution. And the Hebrew people practiced this right alongside other religious uh, folks in their day. We actually read what their tithing practices looked like. We have their scriptures and what we call our Old Testament. It's what they called the Torah. The first five books of this scripture uh, is the law that they follow. And these laws specify what tithing looked like. There were three main purposes to tithing for the Hebrew people at that time. The first purpose was to care for the Levitical priests. These were the religious professionals of the day, the religious leaders, the ones who helped the people connect to God. And so their tithes went to care for those people, to care for their hunger, to care for their homes. Their tithing went to make sure that they could connect to God and that these leaders could help them connect to God, to the love and justice and mercy of God. The second purpose of tithing was to care for the needs of the religious community itself. So sacred days and meals, certain sacrifices, certain religious practices. In other words, another way that people could connect to the love and the grace and the justice of God. That's what tithing was for. And then finally, the third thing we learned was that it was to care for the people in need, both within their community and outside of their community, to care for the orphans, for the widows, for the refugees, for the poor and the needy. Tithing was not just about connecting to the love and grace and justice of God. It was about embodying that love and grace and justice to the world around them. It was a means to a different end. Tithing was not a compulsory religious obligation. And I want to bring that up so that we can see at the heart of tithing is not just a religious action. It's not just putting money in a box or scanning a QR code. It's about embodying the character of God to the world and connecting to that character in our own lives. That's what tithing leads to. I've got a graphic that actually, I think, explains this or, or walks through this well. The religious action of tithing was intended to produce certain results that aligned with the character of God. And if you ever just tithe but did not seek these results or seek to align with the character of God, then you're actually undermining the practice of tithing. The whole point was to connect to God, to his love and grace and justice, and embody those things to the world. It was a religious action that produced certain results that aligned with God's character. And while that was the original intended purpose of tithing, 
as we travel a few centuries downstream from those texts in the Torah, we see that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, were missing the point. They were focusing on the wrong things. They had muddied the water. He says in this text that they're tithing mint and rue and all sorts of herbs. And at first we should think, well, they're tithing. Isn't that what they're supposed to do? Why is Jesus critiquing this, right? They're doing the right thing here, apparently. But in order to understand how the Pharisees misconstrued this command, we've got to understand who the Pharisees were. See, we, in our uh, modern church culture, love to bash on the Pharisees. We think of them as legalistic and uh, overwhelming people, and in some ways, they were those things. But in the culture, they were highly respected, and they actually were pretty well-intentioned in what they were doing. The Pharisees developed as a religious group in response to a lack of fervor for God's word that they saw in people's lives at that time. They arose in order to remind people and emphasize God's law so that they would follow those things in their lives. They were reminding them of the importance of the scriptures. And in their heavy emphasis on the law, they actually started to expand what some of the Old Testament laws actually said. Tithing did not require you to give your mint and your rue and all your herbs. That wasn't a requirement. That was an expansion of the original Old Testament law. They were trying to think of every complex way that this would work itself out in people's lives so that they would know what to do in every single situation. They were codifying everything. And they had the intent to help people follow the law more closely. And tithing is one example of how that intent got a little misconstrued, how they started to focus on the wrong things. When Jesus critiques this, he's saying that they were going to their gardens and picking every tenth leaf off of their mint tree, every tenth herb. They were spending meticulous amounts of time figuring out the exact length that they had to go to to follow the law. That takes commitment. It takes a lot of time. And they were respected for this. They were seen as holy because they followed the law to the nth degree. There's just one problem, Jesus says. They're focusing on the wrong thing. Remember, tithing was a religious action meant to produce certain results that align with the character of God. It's the point of tithing. What the Pharisees have done is they focus so much time and energy doing the religious thing that they've missed the purpose of the religious thing. They practice so heavily the religious action that they miss the end game of the religious action. They've neglected the heart of God. And that heavy emphasis on religious action is evident all over the Gospels when Jesus has interactions with the Pharisees. They regularly overlook the people who most need God's love and grace and justice. They overlook the poor and the needy. They overlook those who are far from God. They're missing the heart because they're so focused on the religion. Friends, sometimes in our lives, our religiosity causes us to focus on the wrong things, causes us to lose sight of the source. Sometimes our religion is our biggest obstacle to connection to God, to embodying God's love to the world. Sometimes religion muddies the water and prevents us from experiencing the source. There's a, a scene in one of my favorite movies from the last few years that illustrates this. Uh, the movie's Little Women. Did you guys see the latest adaptation of Little Women? Nice, yeah. Really good movie. It came out in 2019. Uh, it centers around the March family, a family that has four young women who are trying to navigate their way in the world. And uh, at one point in the movie, the March family learns that one of their neighbors is in need. They need food. They're not able to put enough food on the table. And they're also starting to get sick. 
And so the March family gathers together and creates an incredible meal, a banquet for this family. And then they gather this all together and travel as a family to care for their neighbor. And on the way, the camera makes sure to focus us on a church in the background as they walk. They're walking to give food to this family, and in the background, people are starting to exit church. And the people who are exiting church look great. They're smiling and laughing, and all of those people go the opposite direction in the shot. All those people go home because they've done their religious thing for the day. The film is implicitly communicating to us, never explicitly says it, but implicitly communicating to us that the religious people are missing the heart of their religion. They're doing the religious practices, but they're failing to love their neighbor in one way or another. And the March family is really the one who's loving their neighbor here. The implication is that they're missing the heart of God in the religious space. Now, this critique that Jesus has here is not inherently a critique of religion. Jesus was a highly religious person. He was somebody who encouraged religious action. He doesn't throw out tithing. Did you notice that in this passage? He says, keep tithing. Keep doing it. This is a good thing to do. Religion's not the problem, according to Jesus. The problem is what we focus on in our religion. If our religious actions prevent us from loving our neighbors, then we're focusing on the wrong things. If our religious practices prevent us from caring for the needy or the poor, then we're focusing on the wrong things. You guys, there's a reason that we meet in this space called Hope Women's Center every week. We meet here because it is a constant reminder to us every time we're in this space that every day this is being used beyond our religious space. It's being used to care for the poor and the needy in our community. Our rent money that we pay to Hope Women's Center to use this space is literally going to care for our neighbors. Every part of our church identity is about what goes beyond this room. We want to remind ourselves of that as a community. The space itself reminds us of that. These windows right here, they're a reminder to us that we do not stay here. We go out into a world. There are cars driving by. We see people walking by because we always want to remember that this is not just about what we're doing religiously. This is about how we can embody God's love and grace and justice to the world. That's the point of all this religious stuff, to become transformed people here that go and transform the world out there. That's the point, alongside Jesus. Religious practices, you guys, are beautiful. I'm a highly religious person. I highly recommend praying. I highly recommend spending time in solitude. I highly recommend tithing, thinking about where my money can go to love and serve my neighbors. I highly recommend giving up time and energy for others because I think that's where true life is found and that's where Jesus says true life is found. Those are good things to do. But if our religious actions are disconnected from embodying God's love and grace and justice, then they're useless. They're pointless. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he's writing to the early church in a town called Corinth. He says a bunch of amazing religious things that they could do. He says, you guys could speak in tongues. That is highly spiritual language. You could practice the prophetic. You could articulate the mystery and beauty of God. You could have great faith. You could even care for the poor. But if you do it without love, then all you are is a loud gong and clanging cymbal. It means nothing. It has no power to transform because the whole point of those religious actions is to bring the love of God into our world. 
If we don't have love, then we're just noisy human religious people. And we can't really affect any meaningful change. Our religious action is only as good as its source. Now, this critique that Jesus gives to the Pharisees here, it's highly insulting. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. In Middle Eastern culture, if somebody opened up their home to you and ate a meal with you, insulting them would be a tantamount to rejecting their hospitality. It was an utter rejection of their identity and personhood. Huge deal that Jesus does this here. He's undermining the established religious and social customs of that time. And it's so far-reaching here that other people at the meal start to get offended. Did you catch that in this passage? It's not just the Pharisees that get offended. A lawyer comes into the picture. And the lawyer, I love his words here. He's probably thinking, like, does Jesus know, like, quite what he's doing here? Like, maybe he doesn't. I'll give him the benefit of that. Maybe he doesn't know. So the lawyer says, teacher, just want to let you know, like, you're undermining all of us? You're insulting all of us? Maybe I'll just open the door for an apology for Jesus here, right? Maybe he doesn't really know what he's doing. And Jesus says, oh, you're so right, lawyer. I'm sorry. I forgot to diss you, too. I forgot to dish out the same thing to you, too. Thanks for reminding me. You all, woe to you. He proclaims that they're heaping heavy burdens on the people and doing nothing to help lift those burdens. Now, the lawyers at this time were a bit different than the Pharisees. There was sometimes some overlap, but the lawyers were scribes or copyists. They were people who copied down the scriptures meticulously, and that meant that they were often sources of authority for people. The average person, who maybe didn't have as easy access to the scriptures or maybe didn't know how to read, would come to the lawyers and say, what am I supposed to do? And so the lawyers would be an authority for people in their lives. And similar to the Pharisees, in taking the law very seriously, they started to expand it exaggerate it, embellish it, to the point where following the law was really burdensome, where it neglected the love and the justice and the grace of God, and it was really just about, well, how do I step on the right things? How do I move in the right direction in every part of my life? Rather than cultivating a sense of faithfulness to the heart of God, as the law was always intended to do, they burdened people, overwhelmed them with restrictions and interpretations, and they've done nothing to unburden them from those things. Oftentimes, we learn that they even didn't practice the things that they told other people to practice. Jesus is saying here that if we persist in heaping moral or religious burdens onto people and never do anything to help them through those burdens, then we're focused on the wrong things. We're focused on the religious action and policing our religious boundaries rather than bringing God's love and justice and mercy to the world. Friends, it is always the job of the church to help remove burdens, not heap them onto people, always. We remove burdens. We don't heap more onto them. There's a pastor named Michael Lindvall who tells a fascinating story about how a church navigated this in their own lives. They were approached by a woman whose teenage daughter named Tina had just become pregnant. So this woman was about to become a grandmother, and Tina didn't have any man in the picture, and she didn't know who the father was. It's a very scandalous thing to come into a church and ask for those things. They're already carrying burdens into the place. And Tina's mother wanted to have this new baby baptized in the church. That was really important to them. And many people in the church's leadership started to ask some questions like, well, is Tina fit to raise the child, right? Is Tina even involved in the church? They started to think about the ways that, well, maybe Tina's burdens were actually preventing her from following Christ. 
But over time, they decided, you know what? We'll baptize the child. And they had a tradition in that church. When they baptize a child, after the baptism, they'd ask people in the room, who stands with this child? The reason for that is that typically when you baptize children, it's all about uh, raising those children up in the love and the grace and the justice of God. That's an important factor in baptism. And usually the family would stand. But in this case, it's not really a family. So they baptize the child, Tina's child, and then they ask who in the room stands with this child, and only Tina's mom stands up by herself. It gets a little awkward. It's a long silence. And then eventually an elder of the church stands up too. And then a new young couple that was visiting the church for the first time stands up. And then Tina's elementary school teacher from years before stands up. Soon, the entire church stood with Tina and her mom and promised to love this new child, to love Tina. Friends, Tina entered that church with so many burdens heaped on her. She's a teenage mom, which is always a difficult thing in our culture, no matter what. She was unmarried, a stigma in churches, something that we always tell people you shouldn't do, right? She already is coming in with so much shame. She was uninvolved in the church in any meaningful way. She's got lots of burdens to bear. But this church knew that their call was not to heap those burdens or press those burdens down on her. It was to help her lift them. It was to help remove them so that she could know the love and the grace and the justice of our Lord. That's why they promised to do what they did. And that's our job as a church. To know the burdens that people carry and to help them lift them alongside Jesus. That's what it looks like when we focus on the right thing. And that leaves a question for us as a community. How are we going to do this? How do we do this? How do we become people focused on the right things in all of our religious actions? Focused on the love of God and the mercy of God and the justice of God. How do we become people who help Jesus lift burdens from others? The answer is actually surprisingly simple. It doesn't make it easy, but surprisingly simple. We just have to return to the source. On that Fossil Creek trip I mentioned before, our group was wrapping up our time together, and we were about to hike back up this steep incline to get out of the creek area. And as we did, a couple of folks in our group were interested in finding the source, finding that spring. They're like, I want to know where all of this water came from. And so we followed the creek back. Slowly, the creek would narrow, and eventually, we discovered this little alcove. And it struck me because the alcove was shockingly green and lush compared to the the dirty water and the desertous landscape around us. We kept moving and the creek got narrower and narrower, but its influence became more pronounced. As we got closer to the source, everything was more and more green. And then, right at the center, we found it. This small, bubbling spring, unimpressive compared to the waterfall. We were all amazed at how clear and pure the water was in comparison to what we were just swimming in. A couple people filled up their water bottles. They wanted to get natural spring water. It was the perfect temperature, not too cold and not too warm. A couple people washed their dirty hands or their dirty feet after swimming in the muddy water downstream. Every one of us, in one way or another, was baptized in that water that day. 
we were refreshed by returning to the source. Friends, true and lasting life comes when we, as a community, return to the source. That's all that our religious action is about, returning us to the love of God, returning us to the grace of God, returning us to the justice of God. And it's at this table every week that we do that as a community. If we do nothing else well, if our sound stops working, if our presentation is terrible, this is the most important thing we do because this returns us to the source. There's only one place where God's mercy and justice and love was fully experienced and embodied. One place where the heavy burdens of people have been lifted, and that place is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where it happened. Jesus took on the death that we were hurtling towards so that we might be freed from it. Jesus bore the burdens of our brokenness on two blistering beams, and Jesus rose again so that we might be transformed people, live new lives full of his love and grace. So let's receive what Jesus has done here this morning. Let's experience his love, if that's for the first time for you or the thousandth time for you. Let's become people who leave this room extending and embodying that love to everyone we interact with. Let's get ready to lift the burdens of our world around us. Let's focus on the right things. Let's return this morning, friends, and every day throughout this week to the source. Let's pray.